Today is the finale of uh, our series that we've been doing called From This Day Forward. Have you guys been enjoying this series? I hope so. Um, So it's kind of our first foray into relationships, marriage, friendships. Um, It's a topic that we'll come back to, I'm sure, at some point. Um, but six weeks is usually the, uh, the amount of time that people can stand a series like this before you need to move on to something else. So you may be at your tolerance level uh, for the series, so I thank you for hanging in there. I really do hope that it's brought hope and healing uh, to not just your marriage relationships, if you are married, but to your friendships and other relationships, uh, because all of us are in some kind of relationship, and I think a lot of these principles hold true to all of them. And this last week, we've got uh, a little bit to learn, and uh, so we figured we're going to go out with a bang, and we're going to talk about sex today. So uh, if, you're, uh, <laughs> if, if you're a woman, you're probably thinking to yourself, I've made it through five weeks of this. I was hoping to get out of this thing without talking about intimacy, and here we are. If you're a guy, you're probably thinking something along the lines of, I have endured five weeks of a series just for today. So wherever you happen to be, uh, I'm thankful that you're here and uh, and we're going to go through it anyway. So let me ask you this. What is the one distinguishing aspect of marriage over and above every other relationship that we are having on earth or should have on earth? I've already given you a clue to what that is. Okay, yeah. Now, let me follow that up with with another question. Those of you who are, are married... Uh, or have been married, when you came into the relationship, uh, how identical were your views on intimacy and sex as your partner when you came in? How many of you were like, we were exactly identical in every way in terms of the way that we understood how this thing works, how often, where, when, all those types of things? No one's hands are going up. Are you just embarrassed, or is this... (laughs) Yeah, most of the time when we get into the relationships, we discover that we have very different views from the people that we're in relationship with about this thing. And yet it's supposed to be, according to the Bible, a very central aspect to what it means to be in a marriage relationship. But the thing is, all of us come into marriage with a preconceived notion about what it means to be intimate and to have these kind of relationships within marriage. And the truth is that all marriages, all marriages are not unbridled joy for all their days with no problems in this area. Uh, so it, maybe you could be the exception to the rule, but, but most aren't. Um, and, and so you may, may have gone into a relationship thinking to yourself, uh, it's going to be one way, and you discovered that it was, in fact, an entirely different way. And I, just being honest with you, kind of coming into this series, that, that, is, uh, that is where I was in terms of relationship. And so you notice that uh, Mandy's not here today. She's actually working. And uh, I think she conveniently scheduled when she was going to work around this particular message. So. But when I came into uh, our relationship and when we got married, I had a certain preconceived notion about what it was going to look like. I had certain expectations, certain understandings that I thought were going to be fulfilled, and I thought that all of my life as a single man was building up to this one point and that I would never have to worry ever, ever again about being frustrated in this area. And it turns out in marriage that when two people get together, they often have very different understandings of what it means to be in relationship 
with one another in this way, and oftentimes it causes friction. Some of that is based on misconception. Other of it is based on a sinful understanding that we get from our culture because all of us have gained our understanding, whether we like it or not, from our culture. We are in every way disciples of our culture. The word disciple just means learner. It means that you pick up your knowledge from what you see around you. So whether it's from TV or movies or magazines or the Internet or relationships that you have in your life, you have picked up understandings about how all this works from many of those avenues, and most of them are not good. So in other words, you've learned everything or many of the things that you know from this culture that we happen to be in. You've learned from... Uh, various gods that are at play in our culture. And so in order to understand what to do with this area in a marriage relationship, we need to be honest and relearn a lot of what we've already learned. We need to go back and see how this all plays out. Because in our hyper-sexualized culture, sex sells everything, does it not? Everything from shampoo, like you want to be more attractive to the opposite sex, just buy the right shampoo, right? Because apparently it just happens, and you have uh, this incredible experience in the shower. I don't know what's going on in there. But by the time you get out, you are ravishing, right? (laughs) I mean, it's everything from shampoo to oven mitts, and I don't understand everything in between. But it sells everything because it's trying to make you believe something about it. So so our view of sex and intimacy has been hugely, hugely damaged to the point that most of us, I think if we're being honest, we understand that something has gone wrong, but we have no idea exactly what that thing is or how to remedy it. And so we're kind of caught in this unknowing place. How do we move forward? Where do we go from here as a relationship? How how do we get better at, at this area in our lives? How do we understand it from a different perspective? And so one of the most helpful kind of ways to understand it that I've seen uh, comes out of a book, I've mentioned it before, called Real Marriage by Mark and Grace Driscoll. And they use this uh, way to kind of diagnose where we all come from in terms of our understandings of sex. And so I'm going to use that this morning because I think it's very helpful. Um, They talk about viewing it in three ways, that most people view it one of three ways. Uh, They view sex as a god. Sex as gross or sex as gift. And so we're going to talk about each of those and what it kind of means. So we're going to start out with sex as God. You may not know this, but uh, God created sex. Did you realize that? He, He was the one that invented it. And so if you go back to the Genesis story, it's not like he created Adam and Eve and made them naked and put them in the garden and then like walked away and came back and they're like, what are they doing? You know? I never thought of that before. (laughs) It's just not written that way, right? He intended it to happen. He, He created it. He designed it for our good. But here's the thing. When we view something as a God, we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing. And that happens for all of us. All of us do this in every area of life. We take things that were designed and meant for our good and for the good of our spouse, and we elevate them to be ultimate things, and we end up pursuing 
that ultimate thing in place of the God who gave it to us. Uh, and, And this happens all the time. Something that was meant to be enjoyed specifically within the confines of a marriage relationship. We take it and we elevate it and we say, I'm going to pursue this in every avenue of life, no matter what it leads, no matter where it takes me, no matter what it does to my soul, I'm going to pursue it. And it is a deeper issue than what we do. It impacts everything and who we are. We, we pursue it not just because it's something that we like. We pursue it because it brings satisfaction. We pursue it because it brings security. Sometimes it brings us an identity. But we need to be careful about how we pursue it. And Romans 12.1 actually gives us a perfect picture of why we need to be so careful about it. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You may not know this, but worship is more than just singing a few songs on Sunday morning. Worship is everything that you do with your body, your soul, your emotions, your spirit. And so everything that you do with your body is an act of worship. It can be done to worship God or it can be done to worship ourselves or something else. That's why Paul says elsewhere that whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. What is he saying there? He's saying, if you eat, give thanks to God and and make it an act of worship. If you drink, then enjoy what you drink and make it an act of worship. But don't use it to replace God because you can use it as a substitute for Him or as a way that points you back to your Creator to give glory to Him. So everything that you do with your bodies is an act of worship. And you can choose to do it unto yourself or you can choose to do it unto him. We need to get this understanding into our minds because the reason it's so important with sex is that every sexual act that you perform was designed by God for a specific purpose. And that purpose is to glue you to someone else. It is to create a binding relationship between you and the person that you're in that act with. And so if we use it for another means, for, for another way, uh, we are, what we are doing is we are giving ourselves away to something less than that. So whether it be a girlfriend or a boyfriend, whether it be pornography or a prostitute or anything else, what we're doing is we're using something that was designed by God for our good and for our spouse's good, and we're using it in a way that will ultimately damage our souls. And I know that that sounds extreme. And if, if, you know, maybe you didn't grow up in church and you haven't had kind of a background and sex has been a god of some sorts to you, the, the, the question that always comes in response to this is, I don't see what the big deal is. I don't get it. I, I, I don't understand. And, and so I spent a lot of time on a college campus talking to a lot of college guys. What do you think their number one sticking point was with Christianity? Can you guess? Yeah. Why would I ever become a Christian? Because when I become a Christian, you guys are going to tell me I can't have sex before marriage. I would never sign up for that. And so I would never sign up for Christianity because Christianity is all about rules. Right? 
And even those of us who have been Christians, we can kind of fall into this pattern of thinking that God set up all these rules to keep us from enjoying something that was designed for good. And so we can play this game where we pit him against our own desires and we say, well, I know you love me, God, but if you really did love me, if you really were good, if you really were kind and gracious to me, then you would allow me to pursue this in any way that I want to. Here's what I want to say to you this morning. God designed certain rules to provide us with barriers so that we don't fall off a cliff and end up killing ourselves, right? Nobody drives down a highway that's right on the edge of a cliff and goes, those barriers that are set up on the side of this road, they're impeding my freedom, right? If I want to drive off the cliff, I I will drive off the cliff and everything will be just fine. Nobody says that because they can see for themselves, how dangerous it is to move beyond that barrier, right? The problem is that we live in a culture that has removed that barrier and told everyone that there's a soft pillow down the side of that cliff. Yes? But what's down there is just the opposite. And this is why God set it up. See, a lot of people think of Christianity as just a bunch of rules. And if it were just about a bunch of rules, then then all of us would be failures. Because all of us have broken all of those rules at some point or another. And so it's not about rules. It's about a God who forgives and gives grace when we know that we've broken the rules. When we know that we've fallen short of all that he's intended for us in our lives. God's grace comes to us and says, I know who you are. I've seen all the stuff that you've done, and I forgive you anyway. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. It means he he sees all of you, and he looks past it anyway. The big deal is, is this. Because sex was intended to be the relational glue that keeps this deep oneness between a, a spouse and their partner, um, the cost of having sex and fulfilling that area of our life as an individual need or as a recreation or as a way to find fulfillment in our lives, what it does is this. It teaches you to commodify people and to use them for your benefit, not you for them. Because that's what sex is all about in our culture, right? It's to find gratification and satisfaction, is it not? So we think that we can pursue this and then all of our dreams, all of our hopes, they will be fulfilled. And we end up using those images, we end up using people many times to fulfill our own expectations and when we do that, we turn them into a commodity. And we end up harming every relationship that we have. Imagine then, if this has been the pattern of things in your life, what that would do to your future or current marriage partner. Because we've already said that marriage is about what? It is about a covenant which protects two people so that they can serve one another in love and friendship, right? That all of marriage is about this, getting over your own selfishness so that you can see the person as they are and give your life to them on a continual basis. But if you've used sex as a way to gratify yourself over and over again and every partner that you've ever had, 
has been about satisfying your needs. When you do get into that marriage relationship, you'll end up using your spouse in a way that God never intended. You'll end up using them, which ends up harming the relationship and causing distance. When God said, I want this to be about a companionship and friendship, a service and loving friendship. The thing is, we create in our mind, scientists say something like this, that, that there are such a thing as neural pathways, right? This is what learning is all about, is that when you learn something once, it creates a path. When you learn it twice, it creates a deeper path. When you get into a pattern of thinking, that path is so well-worn that even if your mind wanted to go in a different direction, it falls into that rut. It's like driving down the road and there are two ruts, your, your tires just fall into them. And that's the same thing that happens when we use this pattern of thinking towards intimacy over and over and over again. That even when we want to get out of it, it takes vast amounts of energy to get us on the right track again. So what ha- I mean, it's bad enough on an individual basis, right? But what happens when an entire culture gets this idea of how to use sex? It, it turns into something like this. And I'll, I'll quote from the Real Marriage book because I think it gives a, a really great but horrible picture. It says, annual pornography revenues are more than $90 billion worldwide. In the U.S., pornography revenues were $13 billion, and that was six years ago. Imagine what they are now. Just to give you an idea, this is more than all the combined revenues of pro baseball, basketball, and football combined. You think it's not a problem? More than that, uh, it's, it's more than the combined revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC combined. Porn sites account for 12% of all Internet sites. Every day, 2.5 million pornographic emails are sent. 90% of children ages 8 to 16 have viewed porn on the Internet. The average age of the first porn Internet observer is 11. The number one consumer of online pornography is 12 to 17-year-old boys. You parents who have sixth graders and you wonder, when should I talk to them? The answer is two years ago. Stark, right? And all of it is a worship issue. All of it is because we have taken a good thing which God designed for our pleasure and benefit and we've made it a God thing. And there are always casualties when there's a God thing happening that isn't Christ, right? Because He is the one that took on our sacrifice on His behalf. And so every time we choose to to worship something other than Him, it creates casualties in ways that we didn't imagine. You think of the sex trade industry. Do you know there are more sex slaves today than there were slaves in the time of slavery in America? It's horrible. It's horrendous. And it's all a product of us seeing sex as a god. Now, there's an overreaction to this, and we're going to talk about this too. And that is sex is gross. And so many times we can look at our culture and what it's done to sex, and we can swing the, the pendulum in the entirely opposite way. And I would say this is kind of what the church uh, has been guilty of doing. But I want you to see this. Uh, this is a very interesting passage in 1 Timothy 
where Paul is instructing uh, his young pupil on going and leading in a church. And he says this, In later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Wow, taught by demons, right? How how bad is this going to be, right? It says, They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth for everything God created is good. What is the distortion? What's the lie that demons will, will ultimately be propagating in future times which we've inherited? The lie will be this. Don't get married. Don't have sex because it's gross. You ever hear that in a church service? If you've been around a long time in churches, you probably have. It's necessary, right, for having children, but don't talk about it in public. And for God's sakes, if you're going to do it, don't enjoy it. (laughs) Just do it to kind of get it done with, but take a shower afterwards because it's dirty, right? It's gross. Sex is gross. And what happens is a lot of us inherit this teaching and it becomes part of our psyche. It becomes part of who we are. And when we don't hear about it in church, what happens? We end up hearing about it in our culture. And so many of us have inherited one of these two views, either sex is a god or sex is gross. And sometimes we can inherit this idea of sex being gross uh, because of the people we've been around or the experiences that we've had in life. And one of the things that I discovered as Mandy and I were going through this uh, particular piece, I think it was back in January or February before we had started this series, is that some of her understanding of how sex works in relationships had this idea of it being gross and dirty around it. And so we started to uncover what that looked like for her and where it came from. And what I found out is that a lot of her high school friends uh, that she hung out with were kind of a mixture of guys and girls. And they would get around and, and start talking. The guys would go, you know, in a certain area and the girls would go into another. And she would overhear a lot of the talk of the guys in her circle of friends. And the way that they talked about sex to her was gross. Because they were talking about it as being a god as using people for their own gratification, as doing whatever they could to build up their stature because you were really more of a man with the more people that you scored with. And so she overheard a lot of this as a young woman who was naive about this thing and had never been taught what it meant to have a healthy sexual relationship within marriage. And she took in a lot of these things and she said in her mind underneath the surface on a subliminal level, if that's what sex is all about, then that's gross. If that's what guys understand sex to be about, then why would I want to be a part of that? And even though she would never accuse me of it on the surface, when we got into a relationship and this started to become an issue for us, it turned out that a lot of the motivating factor for her is that she had imported a lot of that cultural understanding of those boys and their grossness onto me. And she thought that I viewed sex the same way that they did. You see how this can damage a relationship? It pulls one partner away from the other. 
and says, if that's what you think about it, then I'm not going to be a part of it. And so you may, in your experience, depending on what you've done or what's been done to you or the conversations and the relationships that you've been a part of in the past, you may think this way and not even know it. You may have this understanding of sex as being gross underneath the surface that's influencing your relationships and may not even understand it. And the reason that you need to kind of move beyond this and understand it as a a couple is because sex was designed to be without shame, right? It was designed by God to be something good for His glory and for your benefit. It was designed in such a way that you aren't supposed to feel shame about it because it's not sinful and it isn't horrible. It's a gift that God gave to our first parents as a married couple to enjoy. And so if you're there, I would encourage you to find healing in Christ and allow what he says about you to be true. So no matter what your past experience has been, you can, with God's help, move beyond that to a new day and a new understanding of yourself in this part of your life. And I would say this, you and your spouse, you need to have a conversation about it. You need to find out what's actually motivating you underneath the surface. Because many times, problems in relationships that seem sexual in nature are usually spiritual and emotional. And they're manifesting itself in the physical act, or the lack thereof. So you need to be clear about it. All right, the last is this. Sex is a gift. And this is where being a disciple comes in and kind of relearning the patterns of thought and what it means to follow Jesus and to know him and to be a product of what he says about you. Genesis 2, 24 and 25. This is sex before sin. It says this, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both, what? Naked and felt no shame. Total intimacy, right? And yet there is no sense of shame between the two of them. Here's the case that I want to make to you. Uh, when the Bible talks about flesh, and it, here it says that they shall become one flesh, it's not just talking about the physical nature. It is talking about the whole person. And, and so when the Bible talks about flesh, sometimes it'll say flesh, and it'll mean the entire person. But it also means the physical act, too. And the two represent one another. And that's why you, it is damaging in every single way to be about the physical union of two people without the spiritual and emotional. Because every time you do that, you are creating a bond with someone else that you have no idea. The marriage union, it is so profound, right, that the two people, they virtually become a new single person. This is why you take one last name and you live in one house and you have one bedroom with one bed because you are becoming one in every single way. It's not like sort of like putting chocolate chips into dough and then kneading it in, but you can still see all the bits and pieces in their distinction. It's more like two chemicals coming together so that neither chemical exists any longer, but the two are one. 
And so you have a new compound. And that's exactly what happens in the relationship. And so I want to say this. This this is kind of the big idea, the, the, the thing that you need to get your mind around. Sex is a gift. It is a gift to married couples for a specific purpose, and that purpose is to create oneness between the two people. And so sexual intimacy, it is both a sign of that union. That, that's why we talk about it being the act which consummates a union, a marriage. But it is also the means by which it becomes a union. It, it is the means by which it happens. And so you can't have a spiritual and emotional union without also having a physical union because the physical union actually brings about the other two. It's so important, right, that that Paul, who is a single guy, is giving instructions to the church, and he tells them this. He says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. What do you think that duty is? It's not mowing the lawn, right? And likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. There is that oneness. You can't say, I am my own person and I refuse to do this for you. Because you don't belong to yourself alone. You belong to them and they to you. And it's such an important aspect to what it means to be in union with one another that that Paul, a single guy, says you better understand this and fulfill your duty to one another. And so this happens in two ways. And so I'm going to just outline for all of us. There are two ways that, that sex primarily brings about this oneness in, in your relationship. And so I want you to be able to see these so that you can start to have a renewed understanding of what it means to be in this type of relationship. The first one is this. Sex renews the covenant through a physical re-giving of one another. When you get married, you come together before the church and before God and you give vows to one another, right? You promise certain things of yourself to that person, not for that day, but for a day to come. And you say, I will be with you and I will be a part of your life and I will serve you until we die. You make promises, right? That's what marriage is all about. This is what I would say. Sex is the renewal of those vows, on a continual basis in your marriage. It is the way that we say to one another, I am giving myself to you anew. It's a recommitment ceremony, if you will. Because every time you combine in this act together, you are re-giving yourself to the other person. There is a glue which is happening. And so every time it happens, you're giving yourself again to your spouse. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong to you completely, permanently, and exclusively. All right, the second is this. Sex demonstrates love to one another by serving each other physically. You remember back in week two of the series when I said that love is primarily an action first and an emotion second? Meaning if you move out in love towards 
another person and you choose to serve them above your own needs, then oftentimes what happens is an emotion comes up from out of you that you didn't expect would be there. And so you choose to act first and respond emotionally second. This is a great picture of of what sex is built like in a relationship. You move out towards the other person in service and in love, and from that motion, you create emotion. Emotion comes from the action. And it's a way that we are meant to be servants to one another in marriage. It's actually the best example that we have of service. And that's why viewing sex as a god is so distorted, right? Because it teaches us that sex is primarily about meeting my needs. But intimacy in marriage is all about having your needs met as you meet the needs of your spouse. It is intended to be a service to the other person. So if you get to the point where the most exciting aspect of your intimacy is serving your spouse so that they're satisfied, you're starting to tap into what marriage is all about and sex is all about in marriage. This is such an important concept, actually, that uh, back in the first books of the Bible, when Israel was being established, they made a certain rule. It happens in Deuteronomy 24.5. I think it's a, a verse that all newly married men will want to... Uh, to memorize. It says this, if a man has recently married, he must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year, he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he's married. It's not taking out the trash, right folks? You want a modern translation of it? It would be something like this. Hey, men, stay home for an entire year and plaster a smile on your wife's face. (laughs) Yeah, right? It's a life verse right there. The Bible's far more frank about this than we are, right? It's far more honest about things than we tend to be. But that's what it's created to do, is to create that oneness within marriage through service to one another. Not to commodify the other person, but to serve them in love. Because when you do that, you're tapping into the very reason for your marriage. So you see, when God tells you, be faithful to your spouse, or if He tells you, practice chastity before you get married, or if He says, enjoy fidelity within marriage, what He's saying is, I want the best for you. I want you to be one with your spouse, and I want you to be connected spiritually. I want you to be connected emotionally. I want you to be connected mentally. I want you to be connected financially. And finally, I want you to be connected physically. I want you to increasingly grow to be one with one another. And so don't view the gift that I've given you as a God Because ultimately, you know this. It will disappoint you. And don't allow it to be something gross because it's not. I created it to be good. I've given it as a gift to you to enjoy. So enjoy it. But do so within the framework that I've given you because if you don't, it will lead you to paths that you have no idea because you haven't been there.
enjoy it. All right, we're going to end there, actually, and because uh, I can tell you guys are really uncomfortable. So <laughs> we're going we're gonna to fast forward and do some questions to, uh, to finish out our series, because you guys have had some great questions, a lot of great questions, so I want to make sure that we get to some of them. And uh, so we'll do that now, and then we'll respond. All right, I don't have Mandy here to, uh, to pawn some of these questions off on. So, and unfortunately, you won't get her perspective today. All right, is there a level of spiritual maturity needed before getting married, and how do you know when you're ready? Uh, that's a great question, really great question. Um, I think Pete mentioned in, in his talk that you never really know if you're ready or not. Um, but I would say this. There is a way to prepare for marriage. And, and it has less to do theologically as it does in practice. And so what have we talked about through this whole series? We've talked about um, that the primary obstacle in marriage is your own selfishness, right? Um, that the purpose of marriage is friendship and being devoted to another one for their benefit and their good, creating the kind of person that God would want to see in them. Um, And so I would say practice those things, even before you're married. Get someone else in your life that, that can point out where you're being selfish and allow them to speak into your life and start to work on that for yourself. Because when you do, and you do get into a marriage relationship, you'll be light years ahead where where most people end up, uh, and certainly where I was when I first got married. So I would say start to practice the principles that we've already talked about now so that you're becoming the kind of person that your spouse needs. And I would say also um, pray for your future spouse, even if you don't know who that person is. Journal out things that, that that you want to be true of them, that you want to be devoted to in them. Pray, you know, through Scripture, the kind of person that you'd love to see God create in another person because you had the opportunity to touch their lives in marriage. Right. Is it okay to read mommy porn like Fifty Shades of Grey? Um, I've been saving this question for a little while. And uh, and now you can see why. Because if I had answered some of this you know, a few weeks ago, then it wouldn't have made as much sense in context. So there are certain things that I, I saved for, uh, for particular messages. And so the other reason was I just wanted to do a lot of research on this because I had no idea uh, the phenomenon that, that this, uh, this book and the trilogy happened to be. And uh, the more people I've talked to about it, the more I've realized uh, that a lot of people are reading it. So if you don't know anything about it, I guarantee that the people that you work with or live next to or are family members uh, have read it. Um, and the, So <laughs> how should I tackle this? Uh, here's what I would say. Um, books like this, and I, I realize the phenomenon for this book is primarily for women, I don't know too many men that have picked up and read the book or has been en- enamored by it. Um, and, and the best thing that I've... The, the, the most thing that I've seen in terms of men's relationship to the book is that their wives are reading it and they're glad about it. Um, <laughs> but I do want to say this. The, 
the book does set up sexual relationships as primarily about meeting and getting what you want. Um, and so you have this woman who gets into a relationship with a man, and she essentially makes her his slave and, uh, and, and propagates this kind of relationship which is very graphic in nature uh, in terms of their sexual relationship outside of marriage. Um, and, and what it's actually doing is propping up uh, ideas about sex that are incredibly unhealthy for even a marriage relationship, incredibly damaging. Um, because what it does is it gives you certain ide- ideas about what sex is and about what it should do and about what it creates and what it does for you emotionally. And so if you, even if you're in marriage and you're experimenting with the things that are talked about in the book, I'm guaranteeing that you're going to be dissatisfied. Um, and you're going to end up fantasizing not about your husband, but about the person in this book and what they're giving to this person. And it will eventually create uh, a tension in your marriage because why doesn't my husband treat me that way? That will happen. Um, I, I would say also this. Men tend to be wired visually, which is why they're the primary users of pornography. Um, and women tend to be wired emotionally. And, and so here's what I would say. Would you feel, as a wife, would you feel comfortable sending your husband to this movie if everything that was written about in it was depicted as graphically as it's written about in the book on the screen? Would you feel okay about that? Chances are the answer would be no, and I think that gives you your answer there. All right. If the Bible says not to have sex before marriage, how will I know if I'm sexually compatible with the person I'm dating? Uh, I've, so I, I spent a lot of time on a college campus and got this question all the time. Um, here's the thing. Even if you do uh, think that you're sexually compatible with somebody, I would go as so far as to challenge you and say you have no idea if that's actually a good indication for your relationship. And here's the reason. Because sex outside of marriage is often used as a performance device to get someone to think that you're likable and lovable. And, and so you end up sleeping with the person that you're dating because you want them to give you an emotion in return. Or, say from the guy's perspective, you want them to think that you're strong and you're um, talented or whatever. It's all about performance, which is really another way of saying, see me and who I am and what I bring to the relationship. This is why when you get into a a marriage that oftentimes the relationship ends up not being what you thought it would be. And a lot of magazines will talk about sex being great outside and not inside a marriage. And the reason for that is because the understanding of what it's meant to be outside was totally damaged. Um, Because it was designed to be a tool for serving a spouse, not towards gratifying yourself. And, uh, And so... That oftentimes you get into a marriage relationship and you end up being disappointed because you find out that it's actually about something you didn't anticipate. What if there are physical limitations to having relations with one another? Uh, what can a couple do to prevent wandering within their relationship? Any advice? That, that's a great question, actually. Um, and uh, so here's what I would say. Um, it depends on the limitation, right? 
There, there, are a number of, uh, there are a number of tools out there, medications and otherwise, that help couples to have intimacy where they are struggling. And so I would start out by saying that it's not, uh, it's not sinful in any way to, uh, to pursue those things. You may not like the fact that the Super Bowl is full of those commercials, and I hate it too, um, but some of those things can be helpful in a relationship. And there's nothing sinful if you're in a married relationship uh, to pursue those things if they are helpful to you. If it, does, if it goes beyond that um, to, to a, a serious f- physical limitation, I would say that there's still um, probably likely ways that you can develop oneness and intimacy within a relationship, even if it doesn't involve intercourse. And so, obviously, I'm getting you know, into more specifics here, but um, you need to discuss with your spouse what those things are and how they will serve one another, right? Have that conversation. I know it's going to be awkward. I know it's going to be like one of those, you know, well, maybe if we just write it down instead of saying it, it won't be so (laughs) embarrassing, those kinds of things. Um, But you need to have that conversation just so that you know clearly where one another is coming from and how you can help the other person. Um, Ultimately, though, in every relationship, there will be times when physical intimacy just will not be a possibility. And so this is one of my big misconceptions going into marriage is that I thought that when you got married, you were never frustrated ever again. Um, And it turns out that there are a lot of times when that is not the case. And so you need to be able to find and discover what that physical intimacy is giving you and find a way to have its fulfillment in your identity and your relationship with Christ. And so I know that sounds like weird and spiritual and like, yeah, get it, get, yeah, right, pastor, you know, uh, that would never happen. Um, but marriage and physical intimacy is meant as a, as a representative, a reflection of our relationship to Christ. And so whatever you're getting in that, and this applies to singles too, whatever you perceive to be getting through that physical intimacy, um, there is a corollary and a better representation in a relationship with Christ. And so you can, in fact, have your needs fulfilled um, and not be frustrated, but you need to be able to find its ultimate fulfillment in him. All right. How does a wife heal from her husband's viewing pornography? Um, this is a, a, a vast issue, both inside and outside the church. It makes no difference because the access to this is larger and easily, more easily available than it's ever been before. Um, chances are, I know from a group this size that many of you are struggling with this issue. And so um, you need to be honest about it. You need to be brutally honest uh, in a way that's loving with your spouse if you're, if you're the person that's struggling with it. And I would say if, if you're on the opposite end of that, um, that there is hope, there is healing that comes out of this. I've seen it myself. Um, but it, it will take a, a large amount of grace and forgiveness, and it will take Jesus being in the midst of your marriage to make you whole. Um, all of us come to marriage as sinners, And that sin manifests itself in various ways. And so all of us need to be honest with the fact that we are sinful people. 
Um, and, and for me, what that does is it gives me the ability to have a lot of grace for my partner when they fall. And, and I know for, for women, it can be a very big betrayal of trust. Um, how, how in the world could you do this to me? Whereas the man is viewing it not so much as a sin against his wife as just a sin. In reality, is it, it is a sin against your wife, but you need to both take it seriously and uh, deal with it gracefully. Uh, so if you need resources on that end, I'd be glad to provide those to you. Father, we thank you so much for, for uh, the picture of what marriage is and how it reflects a relationship to you. Thank you, God, for your love for us. And you loved us so much that you give us good gifts as your children. And so one of those gifts that you've given uh, is intimacy in marriage. And so we thank you, God, for that good gift. And, Lord, I pray that uh, today has been uh, eye-opening for us to be able to see how it's to be used for your glory and ultimately for our benefit, but not in a way that puts um, that act as an ultimate thing above who you are. Um, Help us to understand with our soul that you are good, and because you're good, we can be satisfied in you. And, And so help us, God, to find that satisfaction and to use everything in this life um, for your glory. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.